Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of once saved, always saved, and today's program is a continuation of the previous one. I'm spending some time talking about individual verses that people will often bring up when discussing the subject of can a person lose their salvation or not. And in this program, I'm going to begin in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verses 23 through 25, where it says, beginning in John chapter 12, verse 23, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The reason why this is brought up is because we have eternal life at the end of verse 25, where he says that he who hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life, which means that we have a condition. That's what we have here that Jesus has expressed, is that eternal life is conditional on to what degree you hate your life in this world. So people will take this and they will say, now you have to hate your life in this world. You have to hate it, and it has to be to a certain degree of satisfaction before you can say that you have eternal life, or there will be a final judgment, and the Lord will look at you, and he will determine, he will make a judgment on the basis of how much did you love your life while you were here in this world. If you loved it too much, or you did not hate it enough, then you will not have eternal life, you will not keep it, but you will lose it. That's the position that people will generally take when using this verse in order to describe eternal life as something that is conditional. But it is true that it would be conditional according to the Old Covenant. That certainly is true. According to the Old Covenant, you are not to sin. And I believe that that is what he's inherently referring to. I don't think that he's saying that you have to hate good things in life. I mean, there are many things in life that are good. For example, drinking water eating food, having a place to sleep, having some shelter, having children. I think that these are wonderful things. To hate these things, I don't think, is going to bring honor to God. I don't see that as being the means by which you are going to be able to justify Him granting you eternal life because you hated all of these things. There are many things in life that I think we can enjoy. We should not feel guilty about enjoying these things. And I don't expect that the Lord will condemn us for enjoying some of these things that are in the world. But when it comes to sin, when it comes to the issues related to sin, of course, those things are evil. If you love those things, if you enjoy those things, if you are enjoying those things and you are not hating that aspect of your life, well, then perhaps there may be an issue that needs to be raised. 
And I think that that's what he's referring to, and I'm confident that people will agree with me concerning that, that you don't have to hate everything, that there are many things in this world that are good, that can be enjoyed. But when it comes to sin, if a person loves their life in the sense of they love their sin, well, then they are going to lose eternal life. According to the Old Covenant, that is true which is what the Lord Jesus is teaching at this time in his ministry. He's teaching the Old Covenant in order to demonstrate to people that they will not be able to obtain eternal life unless they get all of the sin out of their life, they fully repent, they fully obey, they observe the law. That was the Old Covenant. But what he is conveying here is the reality that all people, all people, everyone, enjoys something about their lives here that is evil, that is sinful. Sin is enjoyable in general. Well, certainly not all sin for everybody, but there are some sins that are enjoyed by each individual person. Everybody has got some sin in their life that they enjoy, that they love, that they do not hate. That's the point. The point that he is making here is that there is no one who will keep their life who will keep their eternal life. It will never happen. Everyone has an eternal life in the sense that everyone has been created by God to live forever. We have been created by our God in such a way that our spirits are eternal in nature. Our flesh will die, it will pass away, but we have more than just our flesh. We have our soul, we have our spirits, our souls, which are our minds, emotions, and wills, that will remain eternally as part of our eternal spirit. We are all going to have eternal life, but in the context of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, you're not going to keep your place there because you will sin and you're going to like it. That's the issue. The issue is, is that there will be no one, absolutely no one, who will be able to establish a claim on eternal life, who will go before God and they will have eternal life in his kingdom because they hated their sin, some of their sin. They might hate most of it, but if there's any sin at all, they will not have eternal life. They will not keep it. So when people refer to this as the criteria by which you obtain or keep your eternal life, If this is the criteria, then no one will keep their eternal life. In general, when people assert that this is how they live, they will not want to define specifically what this means. They will not want to give you the specific lists of sins, the specific ways of living. They will want to keep this open-ended. The reason why they will want to keep this open-ended is so that they can address certain situations in your life, certain sins in your life at individual times and say, well, you know, I'm not so sure you're going to be able to keep eternal life if you're doing that. And so stop doing that. And then you will probably be a candidate to be able to keep your life eternally. What they mean by that is that they are the ones who are making the decisions concerning what you should do, what you should not do, to what degree. They are going to place themselves in your life to be the ones who decide and control because they will not be willing to give you the absolute list. If they were to give you the absolute list 
of all the things, all the criteria, and make it clearly defined. If they were to do that, then there would be two issues that they would be confronted with. They would be confronted with either the first issue, which would be that a person might find a way to obey those laws, fulfill that list to the satisfaction of the person who's overseeing this. And there could, of course, be great risk at that point because then the overseer would no longer have any real authority over this person because they will have found a way to be mature and holy and righteous, that kind of thing. Or a person will see that it truly is a hopeless situation. They will give up and they will not even try anymore. So when people assert themselves as leaders, as elders, as pastors, and assert themselves in this way over other people, they will cut the conversation short. This has been my experience. They will cut the conversation short in order to ensure that we don't have a clear definition of the expectations that are going to be defined so that a person either does not find a way to accomplish it or they do not lose hope. They stay in some middle ground of limbo of some kind so that they can be controlled by this leader who asserts this verse in this context and presents themselves as the person who's going to help someone else keep their eternal life, when the fact is, is that it really is hopeless. It really is. If this is the criteria, it truly is hopeless. It's supposed to be. So that you recognize that there is going to have to be some other criteria besides hating your life. There has to be some other criteria. Otherwise, no one will have eternal life. The eternal life that the Lord offers through the gospel, the true gospel, is an eternal life that is a free gift. With that eternal life, we can then be born again and made into a new creation. And as we grow and mature in our faith, we will discover, we will find that over time, there are many things in this world that we simply won't like anymore. We will effectively hate those things in the world, partially because we see how evil they are, but also because we see the goodness of God and we enjoy the goodness of God. We rest in the greatness of God so that when we make choices about how we are going to live our lives, what we are going to do day by day, we will tend to make choices towards those things that are greater as opposed to those things that are lesser. This is just one example to show you how the transition takes place. There are many ways that a transition takes place within a believer's life to the extent where they begin to hate the things of this world. It doesn't mean that they have to hate everything. In fact, I personally have found that I have enjoyed many other things that are good in this world in a greater way, that my love of those things in this world has increased. And I don't feel guilty about enjoying the good things of God and the good things of his creation. But that's another topic that has to do with the growth and maturity of a believer. Proceeding into Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, it says, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And of course, by default, that means that they will be judged by the law. They have sinned and they will perish in the law. So you're either going to perish in the law or out of the law. Either way, you're going to perish. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Whether you have the law or not, you are going to be judged, you are going to perish, if that is the criteria by which the decision is made to determine whether or not you are going to perish, because we have sinned. 
Now, verses 13 through 15 are in parentheses, which tells me that this may not be in the original text that Paul wrote. This might be an addition, but I'll read it anyway. Beginning in verse 13, it says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And then in verse 16, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, what people are doing with these verses in general, what they're doing is they're saying that you have to do the law. You have to do the law because if you do not do those things of the law, then you will not have eternal life. You will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, that is true under the Old Covenant. That is correct. And you might be wondering, well, why is it that Paul would mention such a thing as this in Romans, in this letter that he's writing to the Romans? Are these not Christians? Are these not believers? Why would he say to them that they have to do the law in order to be justified? Well, I don't see that. I don't see that he is writing this for the purpose of telling people that they have to do the things of the law or else they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. They will be judged and they will perish. I don't believe that he is writing this for the purpose of saying that this is the Christian life. He's saying this in order to establish the truth, in order to declare the truth, so that he can say other things afterwards. He's got a lot more to say besides this. You have to keep reading. There's a lot more. What he does here is he establishes the fact. He establishes the truth so that later on he can say that because there is no way to observe the law, there's no way that you're going to get all of the sin out of your life. And whether you have the law or you don't have the law, it's not going to matter because those Gentiles who observed the law, who were doers of the law, even without it, they will be witnesses. They will be witnesses that you don't need to have the law in order to do that which is good and not do that which is evil because they lived their lives in such a way that it demonstrated that there was a conscience, there was a knowledge, there was an understanding. And whatever they decided becomes a law through which they can be judged. They don't need the definitive law of Moses in front of them in order to establish the truth that they have sin. And this sin will be judged, and if they are judged according to that, they will perish. That's the point of these passages, that the Gentiles can be witnesses to this truth, just as the Jews are witnesses to the truth that God revealed through Moses, through the Mosaic Law. The point here that he is expressing is that there is an established fact that if a person is going to be saved, if they are going to be judged and not perish, there's going to have to be something else. There will have to be something else. So this is the issue that I keep raising, verse after verse, passage after passage. The issue is is that the people who are arguing over these concerns with regards to can a person lose their salvation or not, the real issue is, is that there is a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of the differences between the Old and the New Covenants. 
In general, people do not have an adequate understanding of the new covenant, and so they default to the old covenant and proclaim that a person has to observe or abide under that which is impossible because they don't know any better. They don't know what else to tell you. All they can tell you is what they see in the law because they do not see the new covenant for what it is. They do not know the alternative well enough to make the connection between the two. They don't know the alternative well enough to be able to distinguish between the two, to make the connection between the two, but to be able to distinguish between the two, to be willing to let go of this, to be willing to let go of, we've got to be doers of the law. Well, you go ahead. You want to be a doer of the law? You want to be justified by your observance to the law? Whatever law that is, go for it. If that's if that's what you want to do, that is your business between you and your God. But I will proclaim and I will tell you that it's not going to work out very well for you. That is not going to be the means by which you enter into eternal life or keep your eternal life. It isn't going to work out because you're not going to be able to do enough to the satisfaction that is required. And the Lord will explain that to you when you see him. If you want to wait that long, but I don't think it's a good idea to wait that long because at that point, there is no more decision to be made. The decision will have already been made. You don't have a place in the kingdom of heaven because the criteria by which you have a place in the kingdom of heaven is his grace and mercy, not your obedience and repentance. It's either his grace and mercy or it's your repentance and obedience. You can't have it both ways. I understand that people try and general people will say, well, you repent and obey the best you can and then he will provide grace and mercy to make up for the difference for where you fell short. All right, so how are you going to say that you did the best you could, that you did your best? How are you going to say that? Are you going to impress God with that? Are you really going to go before the Lord and say, now, Lord, you know, I really did do the best I could. You think he's going to be impressed by that? From what I can tell, there will be a lot of people who will try that, who will do that. I don't want to be a witness of that. That, to me, is just going to be very disturbing. But that's what I see here. That's what I believe is going to take place. I really do believe people are going to go to the Lord and they are going to say, well, I was a doer of the law, maybe not as much as I should have been, but I was a doer of the law more than somebody else was. You know, like Aaron, I was a doer of the law more than him. I did more works than he did. You know, that might not be a good idea. It might not be a good idea to compare yourself with me. Now, I know that there are many other people out there that you can compare yourself with. But if you want to compare yourself with me concerning being a doer of the law, a doer of good works, that might not be a good idea. I mean, certainly we could point out a few things. I can understand that. But in terms of the fullness of the comparison, the fullness of the magnitude, I think you might want to talk with the Lord about somebody else. It might be in your interest to find someone who is a little bit more evil than myself it would probably work out better for you in terms of raising your arguments, raising your issues. But in the end, he's just simply going to tell you, well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you compare yourself with other people. What matters is that you compare yourself with me. This is the standard. It is complete. It is holy. And if you don't meet it, you don't meet it. You want to be evaluated in that way? You want to be evaluated as someone who is a doer of the law? All right, we'll do that. 
and is not going to end well. Grace and mercy is not what God gives to make up for the difference. It is the fullness. It is all of it. There is nothing but grace and mercy or judgment and perish. That's it. Romans chapter 8, continuing on into Romans chapter 8, verses 10 through 14. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What we have here is some more criteria that a person can extract, potentially, from Romans chapter 8. Verse 13, verse 14, verse 13 says that if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, if we assume that this means that you get all of the sin out of your life, you will live, well, then nobody's going to live. So if that is the criteria, it's over. You might as well just stop reading. Let it go, because it's never going to be accomplished. What I believe he's conveying here concerning putting to death the deeds of the body is that you recognize that you are dead in Christ. You are dead in Christ Jesus. You are no longer alive to the world. That that effectively fulfills what he describes here so that you can begin to live your life in Christ Jesus. That's what I see here. I don't think he is referring to you will live in the sense of you will live in the kingdom of heaven eternally. I believe that he is referring to the issue that you will begin to live here and now in this world. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you do not put to death the deeds of the body, you're not going to live to the extent that you would have lived otherwise. In verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you are led by the Spirit of God, then you will be a son of God. But think about that for a minute. How much leading would be required? Well, he doesn't give a specified description concerning how much is required. What I can say is, is that if you are led by the Spirit in any way, this will be confirmation, this will be evidence for you personally that you are a son of God. But if you want to assume that this is going to be a complete leading to the extent where you will never commit any sin again, that you will never live according to your flesh again, well, then that simply will not be real. If you don't believe me, you're going to have to keep trying a little bit more. While you may convince yourself at some point, I don't think you're going to convince me or anybody else around you. I personally think that that would end up being a personal deception. The point is, though, is that he expresses the fact that if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are going to be able to live a different way of life. There will be a different way of life that will be made available to you that you can live right now. What he's going to do is he's going to give life to your mortal body. He's going to give life to your flesh that was not there before. But this happens 
because of his spirit dwelling within you that there will be a manifestation of some kind at some point in your life that will be the side effect of the relationship that you have with him. In the middle of verse 11, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you that this will take place to some degree, to some magnitude. He's saying that there will be the existence of this. He's not saying that this will be complete to the extent that you will be like God manifested in the flesh in every aspect of your life. He's saying that there will be the existence of some life in your mortal body, which will be a temporary experience, because you're not going to live here forever. It will be a temporary experience, a moment in time, something that will happen on occasion in your life while you are living your life. That's what he conveys here. He is expressing the truth that if you are born again by the Spirit, you are a child of God, he will dwell within you, He will transform and change you to some degree, at some point, in some way. This is a unique experience between you and your God. And because of this transaction that occurs in your relationship with him, there will be times when he gives life to your mortal body, and he who is the invisible God will be manifested in a physical, visible, and audible way within and through you to the extent where some life will be manifested within your dead flesh that you have. But this, of course, will be a temporary experience because your flesh will not remain forever because of the condition that it's in. But it still is an opportunity for the living God to manifest himself within and through you in such a way that you become a living testimony. Your dead flesh is used as a living testimony of the living God As he animates it, he animates your flesh in your life now in order to speak to those who are in the world, dead in their trespasses and sins, in order to call them to himself so that they also might be resurrected and saved. I will continue in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net